everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rurkraut. And on today's episode, we have a summer release roundup. Earlier this summer, we talked about past lives in Asteroid City. Very recently, we talked about the phenomenon that is Barbie and Oppenheimer. And now we're going to get into some of the movies that we may have missed this summer, detailing our favorites maybe telling you ones that we think you should skip and thinking ahead to the rest of the summer. Yeah, we have plenty to mention and talk about. Let's get started with this past weekend because a lot of new ones have come out. Plus, we still have some holdovers from the past few weekends, namely Barbenheimer, which we are obviously still talking about and rooting for. Barbie finally broke the one billion mark. We are so excited for Greta and their entire team. A bar billion. Barbillion, yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I think by celebrating, I have to go a third time. So I'll be scheduling that very soon. It gets better every time. I mean, the first viewing is just so pure and full of excitement mm-hmm. because there are so many surprises in the movie with where Greta Gerwig takes it and where all of the actors choose to go. But I don't know. I feel like I've gone three times now and each viewing has just been so wonderful i love seeing everyone dressed up in pink i love seeing crowds of like older women coming out of the movie theater together it's a movie i think that we guessed after we saw it the first time that it would be a favorite rewatch over the years and it's already proving to be true making 52 million on their third weekend i think it was like a 43 percent decline still phenomenal these numbers are especially as of late are just huge numbers that we haven't seen for years so i'm really happy for them oppenheimer also doing well 552 million worldwide it made 28.7 million this past weekend so yes it's less than barbie but it's still doing really well it's his sixth film to cross 500 million which is still incredible especially for a three-hour r-rated movie that is essentially an historical epic Again, yeah, just unfathomable things that, yes, we can expect from maybe an action or a thriller like Inception, but Oppenheimer, again, very proud. The next few we'll talk about are newer films. I did not see The Meg 2, but this came in at third at the box office this weekend with 30 million, honestly more than I expected when, whether it was fake or not, you know, you had the screenshot from Rotten Tomatoes where it got a 0% (laughs) score. (laughs) That went up to, it's at 29% now critic score and 74% audience. We see that discrepancy a lot between the two on Rotten Tomatoes. But I think for how poorly, I guess mostly critics are making it sound, it's making me want to go more. Yeah, so I actually haven't seen The Meg, the first one, so I (laughs) feel like I need to watch that maybe before watching The Meg 2. So we'll see. Maybe I might wait to see this one until <laughs> streaming. it hits. Yeah, it hits streaming. I kind of would rather just go see Barbie and Oppenheimer again and again. <laughs> the Meg, which I saw, I think is a fine summer movie. It's a great time. It made $530 million globally. So yeah, it did very, very well. I saw a still from the follow-up, and it looked like a knockoff of Jaws how Jason Statham like fends off the Meg with (laughs) his leg. So I don't know what 
is in store, but yeah, we'll have to hit this one later this summer. Next up, I did see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. Did you see this too? No, I haven't seen it, but I'm excited to hear about your experience and what you thought of it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, for that matter, since you did see the following one, Haunted Mansion, we'll talk about this together. (laughs) (laughs) So first off, Mutant Mayhem, it made $28 million for the weekend, and then its first run, I think it opened Tuesday or Wednesday, it made $43 million. So I think in those terms, again, doing very well. I know the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are like a 90s property, but I didn't really grow up with them. They weren't like a go-to action figure for me. So this movie, it follows the four turtles, Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and Raphael, as now they're teenagers, they've grown up underneath New York City their whole lives. They've never interacted with humans, so they feel like their dad, who is this rat, has kept them from living a normal life. And as teenagers are, they want to rebel. So they go out into the city, they watch like rooftop movies that we have here in New York, or they try to do normal things, go to the store and... One day, they encounter this girl getting her bike stolen from her, and they go to help her. From here, the story evolves. There's this super fly, and so the girl they meet, April O'Neil, she's a journalist. This is where it gets into, like, Spider-Verse vibes or just, like, the Spider-Man universe, kind of, and she's this journalist who wants to help them be seen as good people, not bad, violent mutants. So there's also this other part of fighting Superfly, who runs this crime syndicate and is killing cops, killing people. So overall, this appeals to a younger crowd. And I think maybe this is the same about Haunted Mansion. We can talk about similarities. But from what I've heard, it's like just one long ad for all of its sponsors. And that's kind of what this movie became very quickly. There are just references on references to pop culture. They start off with Adele, Drake, Beyonce, Ferris Bueller is the movie that they're watching on the rooftop. They mention Geico, Shrek, Attack on Titan, TikTok. It's just like one after another. (laughs) Oh my God, There's an onslaught of pop culture references. And I think, again, that's to appeal to a younger audience. And the dad next to me just like, was muttering Drake laughing to himself for like 10 minutes. I was like, okay, we got to move on. <laughs> like, oh, no. But it is also fun. Like, it's a little violent for an animated movie. You know, we'll talk about some Disney movies later. So in that way, it's a little different, edgy. The animation styles are wonderful, like Spider-Verse is. And again, we'll talk about that later as well from earlier this summer. Talk to me about Haunted Mansion. And what your experience was like. Yeah, so there's a a thing that's happening right now at the movie theaters that is concerning. And it really came to light for me when I saw Haunted Mansion, which was that the crowds are just very into their phones the entire time. And no matter what you do, no matter if you say anything or like try to get them to stop, they will just keep recording the screen or taking out their flashlights or talking to each other during the movie. And that was the case with Haunted Mansion. So that's something that I feel like is, has become very distracting at the movie theaters lately. And 
it is a movie that is definitely geared towards children. So a little bit, but the problem with that also is that it is 123 minutes. If you cut off about 40 minutes of this movie, I think I would have had a nice time, but it is so long and you really start to feel that length and you know where it's going immediately. And this weekend it made $9 million and went up to $59 million globally. It's the second film based on the Disney Park attraction, the Haunted Mansion ride. And this movie has a pretty big price tag. It had a budget of around $150 million. So this is, I think, shaping up to be one of the flops of the summer. The 2003 film, for reference, made $182 million on a $90 million budget, which is a pretty big discrepancy, I think, between the two. And for those not familiar with Haunted Mansion, or if you haven't ridden the ride, or if you didn't see the 2003 version, it follows a woman named Gabby, played by Rosario Dawson, and her son Travis, who moved from New York to New Orleans into this gorgeous mansion. I would have fallen for the Zillow trap too, even though New Orleans is one of the most haunted cities in America. This house is pretty stunning, especially from the outside. When we get into the inside, I think a big problem with it actually is that this movie is very reliant on CGI and it takes away really a lot of the scares, I think, that could have been done much more creatively, like in the 2003 version. But another plot of the movie focuses on this character named Ben, who's played by Lakeith Stanfield. He was an astrophysicist developing a camera to detect ghosts, essentially, and after his wife passes away, he's sort of lost and he ends up becoming a tour guide of New Orleans. And Gabby ends up offering to pay him to come to the house and take pictures to see if there are ghosts there because she and her son Travis know that it's haunted. And it's really haunted by like hundreds of ghosts. It isn't like there's one ghost that is haunting it. But some of the other characters who come into the picture, we have Harriet, who is a psychic. And she's played by Tiffany Haddish. I mean, every time she spoke, my theater really lost it. They were very, very into her specific type of comedy here in this movie. You also have Father Kent, who is played by Owen Wilson. He's this priest who also claims to be an exorcist. It's it's really something else. <laughs> and then Jamie Lee Curtis plays Madame Leota. Doing what? She's been trapped in a crystal ball. <laughs> okay. For hundreds of years. Oh, she's the ball. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. (laughs) She's playing like a very dour version of this character too. It's exactly what you would expect, I think, from Jamie Lee Curtis Mm -hmm. as Madame Leota. But when you were hinting at the product placement and the references, it is extreme in Haunted Mansion. When I tell you, like some of these references had me laughing out loud at just how ludicrous they were. So for example, the group is doing a seance at one moment and Tiffany Haddish's character, Harriet, has out a notebook and a pen so that if they contact a spirit, the spirit can write something on the notebook. And she says, I'm not even kidding you. If you're there, write something down with the pen and my pad from CVS. Why do you need to include CVS? And also, the way that Ben's wife dies in the movie references multiple products, specifically Mm -hmm. fast food restaurants. 
I heard the Baskin Robbins. Yes, line. specifically Baskin Robbins, and it <laughs> is just it's a lot. But yeah, they mentioned Amazon Prime, Zillow. I don't know why movies feel like they need to be SpawnCon, but also what it does in the case of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Haunted Mansion is it roots it specifically in our time now, which prevents it from ever being timeless or ever being a classic. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think these movies are intending to be that necessarily. Like They're just intending to make money this summer and give families something to see at the movie theater, but you are essentially putting it in 2023 and it cannot escape that time so i think that that's unfortunate overall though i think there are some things to really enjoy about haunted mansion i think that if i were maybe 10 years old i really could have found something to enjoy in this movie but for me watching it now it just felt kind of like an endless exercise I also found myself in Mutant Mayhem thinking like, okay, they're teenagers now. So that means they grew up in like the late 90s, but that didn't really make sense. And again, rooting it in the now, in the present, there's also a joke about the three Chris's, like Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Pine. So like you're saying, kids watching this in 30 years are probably going to be confused about what these references are and who these people are. When I think the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles world has been around for so long. So I think that was something else that just kind of took me out a little bit. And so for each of these movies that we talk about, instead of doing what we normally do, where we say, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? We're bringing in our nom or bomb game, which we haven't played in a while. And we're just going to tell you if we would nom or bomb each of these movies. So, Nick, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, a nom or a bomb for you? I think it's a bomb for me. But if you have kids or you really, really enjoy Spider-Verse, I would say you're going to like this. It's going to be a nom for you. So I would definitely go enjoy this in the theater. And you and Haunted Mansion, had you seen the 2003 one? Yeah. So I saw that with my dad. I remember my dad took my sister and me to see it at the dollar theater when it came out Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I liked it, but I was also 10 and I haven't returned (laughs) to it since, but I definitely, my 10 year old self would have said nom for the 2003 version with Eddie Murphy. So I think we know what your answer will be. You can answer, but I think after this, we have to go to Disney world and ride the real ride and see if you would nom or bomb the ride. The ride. Oh my God. Well, because I've never been and I really need to ride the ride because quick aside, when I was younger, we had this Disney sing-along VHS and it was all of the theme park rides, which was honestly kind of cruel since we didn't ever go to the park. We just watched this movie of the rides. But the Haunted Mansion section with Grim Grin and Ghost was always Mm -hmm. my favorite. So I have always wanted to do the ride. I do need to go one day. But yeah, I would have to bomb the movie. You could have cut a lot from it. And the references really did send me over the edge. And I just wish that it looked a little bit more creative and less lifeless. I guess even though it is a movie about ghosts. But yeah, it. It, it just left a lot to be desired, I think. So I'm going to say bomb. But in a similar way to you, I think if you're a kid listening to this podcast or if you have children, it's not a bad movie to take them to see by any means. Okay, so for our next section, we'll mention some other movies we've seen this summer that don't fit as well into any of our other categories that we'll talk about today. So starting off here, we have No Hard Feelings, the 
big Jennifer Lawrence movie that came out earlier this summer. So here she's hired by this wealthy family in order to date their 19-year-old son. And she's dealing with issues of her own and foreclosure on her house. So she needs the money. So she accepts this and it's about their relationship and her trying to get him to open up and potentially have sex and kind of open him up to life before he goes off to college. So it was directed by Gene Stepnitsky and also starring Andrew Barth Feldman. We talked about this last year and earlier this year on our early release episode. And I think this was a great time. Our entire theater didn't stop laughing. And I think J-Law returning to R-rated comedies is really, one, what we wanted, and two, it was a surefire success for me. And I want like 17 more of these movies where she just goes around doing whatever she wants. I didn't necessarily need her being fully naked in this movie but again it's some of that raunchy comedy and there's a really heartfelt scene where he sings to her at a restaurant he sings Maneater a version of it that he wrote himself so I was really astounded by that too yeah I think this movie was exactly what I wanted it to be for the most part Jennifer Lawrence is a movie star she has proven that many times before but I actually think that You know, sometimes in her movies with David O. Russell or Adam McKay, they kind of push her to these extremes that I don't think fully work necessarily. And I like her much more when she's able to either be this kind of stripped down version of herself in these indies, like we saw in Causeway last year, or that allow her to show her the weird, very funny side of herself. Because that is, that's the Jennifer Lawrence we know in interviews and the Jennifer Lawrence that we love. It's this person who's able to kind of do it all. And here, I actually feel like this could have been even raunchier. I think that's what I was expecting from it. But I think what I took away from it really was I do need her in more studio comedies. And this proved, I think, too, that audiences still want these kind of R-rated studio comedies that we grew up with. And I think also having a lead like her in a movie like this is really refreshing. But yeah, I think sometimes it has trouble tonally, I think, between being this raunchy comedy and being more heartfelt. I also do think that she and Andrew Barth Feldman are great together. I feel like he was also like one of the shining stars of the movie. I don't think that either one of them necessarily like won the movie outright. I really liked both of them. And... The naked scene, I will say this is her Eastern Promises, if you ever saw that movie with Vigo. (laughs) That's what I thought of when I was watching that scene. But yeah, I feel like overall, it was exactly what I was looking for. I don't know. It it lived up, I think, to my own expectations of the movie. Yeah, I didn't expect a five-star comedy. I wanted to go and decompress, just enjoy what I was watching, and... It was one of those interactive things, too, where you like look at your Mm -hmm. friends and laugh and you're like, oh, my God, this is happening. So for me, it's a nom. Would you nom or bomb this? For me, it's a nom. And it's still out in select movie theaters. So if you haven't seen it yet, go see it. And it should be on VOD, I think, fairly soon. Next up, we have A Fire, which is the new Christian Petzold movie. 
So this is a German language film that is out right now in the U.S. in limited theaters, and it should be expanding here. And I know it had a release in Germany. It should also be expanding to other European countries if it's not there yet as well. But I really loved this film. I think it's a dark comedy while also being incredibly tragic, and it really catches you by surprise. So... It's about this one character named Leon, who is a writer. He's working on his new book and he goes with one of his friends to this house that his friend has near the Baltic Sea. And while they're there, this forest around them catches fire and sort of like this Airbnb kind of situation where they have overlapping guests. And this woman, Nadia, is played by Paula Beer and Leon and Nadia kind of have this back and forth and this really interesting relationship. And I just, I absolutely loved this movie. I thought it was heartbreaking and it felt kind of like a novel actually to me. And Christian Petzold's visual language is just so strong. It has stayed in my head ever since and really is just one of my favorite movies of the year. It's very slow and focused on the characters much more than the narrative itself. But these characters are so complex and well-drawn and it's kind of hard to get a handle on them. They kind of slip through your fingers. So it's interesting to see what they do throughout the runtime of this movie. And it's pretty much set in one location as well. So it's just set at this house and at the beach. So you kind of feel the fire closing in on them, which also adds this element of fear and suspense to the story. And yeah, I'm not going to spoil what happens in it because I know many people haven't had the opportunity to see it yet, but it really is, I think right now up there for one of my favorite movies of the year. I think the performances are great. The screenwriting is absolutely incredible. So I highly recommend A Fire. I definitely want to see this. I am such a fan of his earlier Phoenix and Transit, both wonderful films so i'm definitely gonna check this out it's playing at ifc in new york so definitely go see it it is a hardcore serious nom from me next up is red white and royal blue it releases on amazon prime today day of release and it's the film adaptation of the book same title about the first son of the u.s his name is alex claremont diaz and the young prince, Prince Henry of the UK, and how they unexpectedly fall in love. So it's this really cutesy story. The book is just the perfect summer read, summer beach read. It's a little horny. It's sweet. It's cute. It plays well in modern day. They're also not out to their families yet. And also, you know, with the royal family, what that brings with it. So it's partly about coming to terms with themselves and dealing with this relationship, keeping it under wraps for a while, and especially being in such high, powerful positions. That adds another layer to it, which in the film, we have Uma Thurman playing this Texan first woman president of the U.S., which is... I cannot believe this. It's a whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) It's as crazy as it looks in the trailer, so (laughs) that's not off base. And Stephen Fry plays the king of England, which is also funny. I kind of wanted more from that performance, but he's only there for one scene. He probably filmed for one day. It's directed by Matthew Lopez, who wrote The Inheritance, the 
Broadway play, the two-parter kind of like Angels in America for a millennial Gen Z audience. And the two leading stars are Taylor Zakar Perez, he plays Alex, and then Nicholas Galantine, who plays Prince Henry. If we were doing this, like, give this movie one Oscar, I'm like, I think I just smashed them. That's my answer. <laughs> That's my Oscar. <laughs> the Smasher Pass edition of the Oscars. Yes. Those are the awards. <laughs> but there are some other great supporting performances. There's Rachel Hilson, who... I recognized the entire movie and couldn't place it, but she was in Love, Victor, which is very oh. much what this movie is giving. I think for being a studio streamer movie, I expected more, but it is very much for like a teenage audience like the book. And then two of my other favorite co-stars are Anish Sheth, who plays Alex's secret service agent, and Sarah Shahi, the deputy chief of staff. Just like fun supporting comedy roles that adds to the drama of all the situations. They get into some sticky situations that are just really funny. But I think if you like Call Me By Your Name, again, I said Love Victor, Love Simon, Similar Worlds, Heartstopper, second season now out on Netflix. If you like all of those, definitely go see this movie. I will nom this. I think it will play very well for like groups of people wanting a movie night together. I think it's a great mix of genre, definitely heavier on the comedy side, but also some really sweet moments. This does get like a three out of five cry rating from me too. (laughs) Important. Yes, I, I was shocked that I was crying, but there's also one of my favorite songs of all time that I've always said will be my wedding song in it. Oh my God, what song? Why don't I know this? It was also from Crazy Rich Asians. Can't help falling in love. Oh, I'm excited to see this. I read the book in about two hours one day at the pool. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought it was great. It was good fun. And I feel like if the movie captures a similar feeling that the book does, it'll be just a great summer watch. So I'm going to watch it this weekend. Next, we have The Beanie Bubble on Apple TV+. This is kind of part of the product craze happening right now in cinema this year. And this is about the creation of the Beanie Baby. It was directed by Kristen Gore and Damien Kulash and stars Sarah Snook, Zach Galifianakis, Elizabeth Banks. What did you think of the Beanie Bubble? So when this movie started, I was really excited. I was like, wait, we just got Barbie. I'm sure these ideas kind of came about at the same time and they were independent of each other. I was like, who owns Beanie Baby? And you learn that it's Ty. I always thought it was T-Y, that iconic heart label. Me too. It's Ty after one of its creators, and that's kind of what the story gets into, is that it's not fully his, but he kind of pushes the women of power in this company out of their positions and pisses them off, and they kind of get back at him. So... Where I started, I was like, wait, I think a Beanie Baby movie would be really successful. And as you watch this movie and hear about what happened to this company, by the end, you're like, okay, we're not getting a Beanie Baby movie. And this is exactly why. And it's, you know, he's an awful man in power. The power kind of gets to him and corrupts him. And that's a lot of what we've seen in multiple companies lately. So I definitely learned a lot. 
the structure of the movie is a little confusing. One, because of him just having relationships or sex with multiple of these women and not really knowing which one he's married to or which one he's with at one time. And this relates to how they present the time period. But the other part of it is he and Elizabeth Banks' character and Sarah Snook's character have created these Beanie Babies and the names and the look based on Sarah Snook, who plays Sheila, her kids. So these two girls, they're giving their input. And as the time changes, they don't change in age. So that's another reason why I was a little confused. I think throughout the movie, though, I was never fully invested in the story. And I think as it's coming about, you understand what they're trying to do. And the story that is coming across isn't exactly new. So the stakes kind of fizzle out by the end of the movie. So I think for me, this is a bomb. I think the intended audience isn't necessarily the kids that played with Beanie Babies. It's the adults that knew about it or maybe even traded them, which they get into in the movie, or an older generation who really enjoys biopics or these fictionalized accounts of true stories. How does this compare to Air, for example? Oh, Air is way better. Okay. That's what I kind of gathered from the way that you were talking about the Beanie Bubble, but I just had to ask. There's also more comedy there. I don't know. I mean, you get Elizabeth, who is great at comedy. I love seeing Sarah Snook, who does get to be like this angry, empowered woman towards the end of the movie, which kind of brings back succession for her so i'm glad to see her kind of play with different genres too oh and um geraldine viswanathan is in it who i also really like from blockers she was in bad education too and she's gonna be oh, right. in drive away dolls the new ethan cohen movie with margaret qualley yeah she's also really good and plays a really important part and i think one of the more frustrating parts of the story for the way that Ty doesn't really appreciate her and her input and knowledge. So this is on Apple TV Plus. Go check it out. Our next category will be talking about summer tentpoles, dot, 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 or are they? Because of how they've performed at the box office, maybe not as well as we had hoped. Yeah. So first up, we have Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Did you end up seeing this one? I have not. Well, I will tell you all about it. So (laughs) this was... Directed by James Mangold, not Steven Spielberg. And it stars, of course, Harrison Ford. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is in it. And I think she's excellent in the movie. I think she's a good fit. And Mads Mikkelsen. This movie cost $300 million to make, which is a very, very high budget. And it's only made $358 million. So it is, again, like one of the bombs of the summer. And... I I understand why. I think that people are proving to be less and less interested in certain types of IP nostalgia. Now, I think you could say like Barbie is certainly nostalgic in a way for certain viewers who played with Barbies growing up. But this after Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I don't think audiences wanted to go back to this place after that. I think... Maybe if we didn't have that film, 
this would have done a lot better like that one did, but I don't think audiences were really interested in going back into this world. And honestly, after seeing it, I think it's for good reason. So in this story, Indiana Jones, he is on the precipice of retirement and he suddenly is thrown back into a new adventure that brings along his goddaughter, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, and they are trying to race against this man named Dr. Voller, played by Mads Mikkelsen, who is a Nazi, for this object called the Dial of Destiny. And the Dial of Destiny can essentially allow you to time travel to a particular point if you have both pieces that make up the dial. So for the story itself, it does fit, I think, really well into the series as a whole into the property. And I do think I have to say too, like I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. That is one of my favorite Spielberg movies. I had so much fun watching those early movies as a kid, but this just didn't have for me any of that fun. Number one, the de-aging for me just did not work. So (laughs) for the beginning portion of the film, and I think this is where a lot of the budget comes from, They show a de-aged Harrison Ford, a de-aged Indy. And the weird thing about this is that while his face is de-aged, his voice is not and his movements are not. So it's a very kind of uncanny experience that you're getting watching this character. And there also really isn't a point to the de-aging. So when we think about a film like The Irishman that used this de-aging technology, there was a point to that. It was thinking about Frank Sheeran's memories in recounting his past and how you look in your memories when you picture yourself in a different time. Here, we just didn't need it. And it ended up just looking really strange. And I think that the CGI in the movie, I feel like a broken record was saying this with The Haunted Mansion too, but it just didn't work. And there were certain moments of the movie that I liked. I liked the rapport between Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Harrison Ford. It absolutely wastes Antonio Banderas as an actor in his little part that he's in in the movie, which I thought was unfortunate. But yeah, it's also very long, much longer than it needed to be, I think, here. And I just wish that they put the fun of the originals back into this. I know that these movies are supposed to be somewhat silly and have a lot of chaos around them, but I just didn't feel any of that creativity and love for the franchise, I think that you would expect from a director who's new to the world and eager to take it on. So this is unfortunately a bomb for me. I would, however, nom it for Mads Mikkelsen's pronunciation of Alabama because it's incredible. He is a professor at the University of Alabama who would rather go back to 40s wartime than Tuscaloosa. What? That's a plot point of the movie, which is something. But yeah, I mean, it's fun in a lot of places for a summer movie. But overall, this was kind of a big disappointment for me. Yeah, maybe I'll check this out when it's streaming. But I did see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. This was initially going to be one of the biggest movies of the summer. And it has done really well. It's made $450 million in the box office. But I think it kind of fizzled just because of its release date being a week before Barbie and Oppenheimer. So there was some drama with those IMAX theaters being taken over by Oppenheimer. And when I finally saw this, 
they were only in like the normal theaters and I did want to experience it in IMAX. So that was one of the big letdowns here, but it continues the story in this franchise with Ethan Hunt played by Tom Cruise and their IMF team. They tracked down this new weapon from Russia. It's called the Entity. It's basically AI that has a mind of its own and can change think for its own it can really destruct anything but it's funny as you explained indiana jones these plots are really the same you have you have two (laughs) halves that form this dial of destiny and here you have these two halves of a key that when you put them together it opens or unlocks the machinery that holds the software and There was a really great opening sequence. By the time the title cards came about, it was like 20 plus minutes into the movie. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. (laughs) But in the opening sequence, you see the submarine sinking and that holds the machinery. So being a part one, you kind of know this isn't going to be solved. And in part two, we can expect Ethan Hunt, their entire team, finding the submarine and destroying whatever's left there it's directed by christopher mcquarrie starring tom cruise rebecca ferguson reprising her role Haley atwell who i think is a great potential replacement for ethan hunt maybe down the road we'll see how long tom cruise stays with this franchise i mean he's been in it forever and really is why it succeeds so much because he does his own stunts and there are a lot of cool action sequences I mean, when he rides that motorcycle off of that cliff, you really do feel the weight of that in the moment and when they look over the cliffside and how tall it is. And if you've seen the behind the scenes videos and how they did this, it's just, it is really stunning. So, and then also Vanessa Kirby, who is also reprising her role. I think it's a lot of fun. It's got all of that action packed into it, but also drama that works. It moves at a really steady pace, and this is on the longer side too, but I think overall it mostly works. This would be a nom for me. This would be a nom for me too. I think that it is another great summer blockbuster. It is just a fun time at the movies. I do love the Mission Impossible franchise. I think of all of the action franchises, this one is near the top, if not my favorite, And I feel like while this didn't live up to Fallout for me, I thought it was still just a great time. And I loved the airport scene in the movie. There are good uses of set pieces, Mm -hmm. as there are in most Mission Impossible films. But here, I really liked the moment in the airport where we meet Grace, the Haley Atwell character, and she's this pickpocket. And at the same time, like Benji is trying to figure out how to stop this bomb from going off. As they're on the run together, you're also getting to know who Grace is as a character. And you also get to see how the entity operates as technology too early in that scene. So that really worked for me. I also loved the return of Kittredge and how those masks are used. I feel like that was a really good introduction there earlier on. I think it gets a little bit confused when... Alana, the Vanessa Kirby character, enters the fray again, and it 
I think all of these movies can be a little bit confusing and convoluted with where the plot is going. Even if the rules tend to be clear, sometimes they go down paths that they don't necessarily need to. And this was a case where I felt like it was maybe trying to do too much and trying to separate the film into two parts when it could have just been one movie. I also felt like Ilsa was incredibly underused. I love Rebecca Ferguson in that part, and I wanted more of her in the movie, but I do think that Haley Atwell was a fantastic addition. I loved the scene when they're in that little car together, handcuffed, and they have to figure out how to drive away. And yeah, I thought I mostly thought that the women in the film were great. So I, I liked all of them, and I loved the ridiculous scene at the end with the train car. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. That's just like perfect Tom Cruise Macquarie design right there. It's so Mm -hmm. silly and funny, but just fun to watch. And there's actually a lot of comedy in this movie, I thought. Like, I was laughing at a lot of Ethan's lines and specifically how Tom Cruise would choose to deliver them. There's a moment when he realizes the parachute can only hold one. And the way he says it, he's like, it, there's only room for one. It's just so serious. It, it's so funny to watch. I My theater was on the edge of their seats, laughing the entire time, having a really good time with this. So, yeah, I think a lot of its thunder was kind of taken away by Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out right after. But I think it's definitely worth a watch. I also really like the Venice sequence when they're fighting. That's when Vanessa Kirby does come in. The stunt work you're talking about, the references, so there's a big reference to Battle Potemkin and the General, and I love how they kind of one-upped those original set pieces and moments in film history. A little outlandish, you know, you have this big Humvee racing this Fiat, but uh-huh. it's it's a fun moment and i think plays on all of that comedy you're talking about especially in a tom cruise way which is what we have come to expect from these but i agree that it's a nom but it's not as good as others in the past if it's still out around you i'd recommend seeing this in a theater for the sound for the big screen before it comes to streaming absolutely So the next section we're going to get into is the return of 90-minute cinema. So a lot of the movies we've talked about so far in this episode are on the longer side. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, Haunted Mansion. These are all over two hours or over two and a half hours. So they have longer run times. Sometimes those are totally justified. But sometimes it's also nice to just go to the theater after work or on the weekend and Watch a movie that is just 90 minutes or around that. So first up, we have Theater Camp. And this film was directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman. It also stars Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, Noah Galvin. It has a really fun cast. And it is about the staff members of a theater camp in upstate New York. And there's some drama with the camp. Basically, the founder falls into a coma after she has a seizure due to strobe lights in a production, which is just funny. Just a funny way to start, really. Um, But that's how a lot of the comedy in the movie works. I think even in the dramatic moments, they're always tinged with this kind of absurd comedy throughout. And her son has been put in charge of the camp over the summer, and he's 
pretty incompetent. He has no experience with theater or with running the camp, and all of the campers are still there. But the camp has also fallen under like, financial struggles, and it might go into foreclosure. So there's some stress that's put on the camp in, like, can it survive financially? How has it survived all of these years against this rival camp that's just a little ways away? So what did you think of theater camp? This is a nom for me. I had a lot of fun with it. I really love this movie too. I think the comedy works so well. Yeah, that opening sequence with Caroline Aaron and Amy Sedaris was so hilarious. And you get a lot of title cards throughout the movie, which plays on the comedy. I like the rest of the cast. This movie works because they know that they're being caricatures of themselves too. Mm-hmm. They have photos of when they all went to camp together when they were kids, which I think is really sweet. So again, there's this meta aspect to they've grown up now that they're counselors at a similar kind of theater camp that they had went to together as kids is not only cute, but they can play it. So it's funny now. And I think my standout of the movie is Noah Galvin. Definitely. Agreed. For most of the movie, he plays a pretty supporting character, and he's got some good comedic timing, but in the end, he is a really important performer, and he delivers out of 10 when I did not see any of this coming. There's an original song that blew me away. It's just this final moment. There's a paper mache nose that comes about, and... (laughs) (laughs) These awful lyrics to this song, but it's such a sweeping finale that when the movie ends, everyone is just happy. Everyone's talking in the theater and you just leave out on such a high. It's this is also a nom for me. Yeah. And I I think this movie also will work better if you either did theater growing up or you're really into theater now. Like if you go see a lot of shows and if you're familiar with that world, the jokes, I think will land more successfully than maybe if you're not as familiar with the world. But I think there's still something to enjoy from it, even if you're not like a theater person or anything like that. And I liked the relationship between Rebecca Diane, the Molly Gordon character, and Amos Klobuchar, the Ben Platt character. I felt like I liked how the movie focused on these two staffers and the idea of, you know, when is it time to leave something or like is something that you've done forever going to be your entire life? And what happens when you have a friendship that is very codependent and what happens when that changes? So I liked that. I do wish that the movie focused a little bit more on the kids. I think I was expecting something kind of like School of Rock where you have a very clear character in Dewey Finn and the teacher, but you also get to know a lot of the kids Mm -hmm. and their personalities that come through. And I think I was expecting a little bit more of that as they were all placed in their respective shows that they were going to be doing over the summer. So yeah, I think if I had to like pull out a weakness of the film, I would say I wish we spent more time getting to know the kids, but overall I really, really enjoyed it and think it's just a nice like easy summer comedy and it feels also you know it premiered at Sundance it feels like a Sundance movie and I mean that as a positive thing too it just feels like one of those little gems that 
gets distribution from that festival. Next up is Talk to Me, the new horror A24 movie. This was directed by Michael and Danny Filippo, and it's about how these teens discover how to conjure spirits. It's basically a new kind of Ouija board. So when you hold this hand and you say these certain words, you see dead people. You see these spirits, and they become a part of you. And you have 60 seconds. When you release them within that time frame, they go away. If you don't, they become and stay a part of you. So obviously this movie battles with both of those scenarios. And I thought it was really inventive in how it used this hand, this way to conjure spirits as a high. And it features like one of my favorite montages of the year and by horror movies in general of the kids just back to back use this hand. They're conjuring the spirits and there's a great song playing in the background but you start to understand that this becomes like a drug for them and they're all enjoying it. They're all having fun watching each other become distorted and like almost deadly themselves while they're doing this. And so they keep switching off. So it reminded me of how like TikTok culture came about and what people are doing there, especially a younger generation. Overall though, I think there are some plot holes There's some issues with the movie, but I think if you're going in, like we've talked about before, horror can sometimes be finicky and we can be really critical of it. And I think if you go in not hoping for too much, wanting some really gruesome and terrifying scares and coming out with what I thought was like a perfect way to end this movie, even though maybe it was a little anticlimactic, I came out on the positive. So I will give this a nom. What did you think of Talk to Me? So I am one of the few people, I think, who this didn't really work for. I know that a lot of people really love this movie, critics and audiences. I think I've given it like really positive reactions so far. Like my taste in horror just doesn't really align with the type of movie that Talk to Me is, which to me is a movie that is upsetting and not scary. So like I yeah, I was just upset and agitated by what these directors were trying to put me through watching this movie. And I I think just in general, the types of horror movies I like, I mean, Rosemary's Baby is my favorite horror movie of all time. And we don't really see anything gruesome in that. It is all just dread. And I saw Don't Look Now in theaters recently and was just floored again by that and rogues masterpiece and how it's a slow burn and it rewards patience and this movie i think works for you if you really like gruesome relentless violence in horror movies and i think that works for me sometimes i do love a good slasher but here i think it was trying to be a part of conversations that Jordan Peele and Ari Aster are a part of right now and making a type of horror movie, you know, that feels new in a way, but I didn't find anything to be particularly inventive about this movie aside from its ending, which I did really like. I think that the last minute of the movie is great. And I loved that final shot when you realize what has happened here, but everything that has to do with the little brother 
Riley, just like, it was too much for me. It just like broke my heart. I really couldn't handle it. I was like, maybe I'm just, I don't know, soft right now or something and just can't do this. But it was, it was really, really hard for me to to watch, especially because I think that the directors really expect us to be on Mia's side and to feel for her and to root for her as sort of a final girl or something like that in the film. But I found myself actively repelled by her and (laughs) her decision-making. It's a movie, I think, that takes the, oh my God, don't do that. Are you stupid? Don't do that to an extreme at every step of the way. And I think if it's an allegory for drug use, that's really interesting. Kind of like you mentioned, like the high that the characters get from touching this hand and daring each other to do that. But for me, it was trying to do too much without really saying anything new throughout it. So this is a bomb for me. And I know I'm on the outside for this. I know there are a lot of people who will really like it and who will be all in on Talk to Me as this, you know, type of 2020s horror film. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was a miss. I really like Sophie Wilde, who plays Mia. I feel like her accent work, her ability to turn on a dime was really, really good. And... She has to do so much in this movie. I think all the actors do to an extent because of what's happening, but I was really surprised by her. I think this plays with Australian horror and what they do differently than maybe what we do here. And like you mentioned, Ari Aster or Jordan Peele. Probably what you would recommend is The Babadook instead of this. Definitely. And I think this also has elements of The Loved Ones, which is another gorier but kind of funny and scary Australian horror film so definitely check those out as well and next up we have Joyride so this was directed by Adele Lim and it stars Ashley Park Stephanie Hsu Sherry Cola and Sabrina Wu if you take the comedy that's in No Hard Feelings and crank up the raunchy to an 11 Mm. I think that's what Joyride is so Ashley Park plays this character named Audrey who has to go to China for a business trip. And she was adopted from China when she was a little girl by white parents. And her childhood best friend, Lolo, goes on the trip with her. She is also Chinese, but was raised by Chinese parents. And the opening to this film, I think, is really funny when these two little girls meet on the playground and realize that they're destined to be childhood friends and even beyond that. It's great. And then on the trip, they run into Kat, who is Audrey's college friend. They were in an acapella group together, and she's an actress in China. They meet her on the set of her latest project, and they also are accompanied by Lolo's cousin named Deadeye, played by Sabrina Wu. And it's sort of like girls' trip meets the hangover as they're all this group is just on this adventure like through China together and a lot of mishaps happen. And the thing that is also in the back of the group's mind and in Audrey's mind is finding her birth mother. So basically they get into a situation where she has a horrible drunken night out with the businessman who she's supposed to sign a deal with for her law firm to become partner. It goes awry and she in order to be taken seriously as a Chinese woman and not as an American woman, 
is supposed to bring her mom to this party in a few days. So they have to go find her. And that's kind of the general plot of Joyride. What did you think of this movie? I think it was even funnier than I expected. It gets so goofy at times that it was almost too much for me. Like it gets very surreal. Stephanie Hsu does things that go even further than what she did in Everything Everywhere. That I was like, oh, she loves this. She wants to do this all the time. She's in these like soap operas, these like samurai soap operas. And she's in a relationship with her hot co-star But she joins her on the trip, kind of like trying to get Audrey to loosen up because she's a lawyer. She still wants to be professional and complete this deal. And I think what ensues, it just snowballs into the very weird and wild. There's some other great supporting performances, too. Meredith Hagner shows up on a train. She was from Search Party. Great show. Annie Mumolo shows up at one point, too. I love that. That's how you know it's going to be good. (laughs) Exactly. So very much rooted in comedy. And by the end, yes, there were some tears again, too. Just the way these friendships, these relationships are really put through the ringer. And by the end, strengthened by what they've undergone together. And the whole sequence with Audrey and her birth mom and finding out where she came from was really emotional and I think it played with genre perfectly even though this film goes way off the tracks I think it brought itself back by the end and really showed that they knew what they were doing again 95 minutes it's a tight film and I think we can definitely expect more from all these actresses and Adele but yeah this would be a nom for me yeah this would be a nom for me too I Sometimes I think if a comedy is just a raunchy comedy and doesn't have a heart at the center of it, I can lose my patience with it fairly quickly. But this one, I think the ensemble is just so good. And Adele Lim does such a great job of balancing the raunchy comedy in it with these really heartfelt, sincere moments about like discovering who you are, your place in the world, your identity as a person, but also thinking about your friendships. And these actors are all so strong in the movie, and I loved just watching all of their scenes together. It is a true ensemble comedy with some scenes that you were just gasping, really, at how far they go (laughs) with some Mm -hmm. of this. And there are certain montages that are truly too much, but that I did enjoy. I'll, I'll just say there is a tattoo that will not leave your brain. Oh, my God. Okay, I think so far we really haven't talked about any Oscar potential. Maybe with Mission Impossible or Indiana Jones for special effects. And Barbie and Oppenheimer don't count. We've talked about those before. Potentially Mutant Mayhem for animated. Earlier this summer we had Elemental and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I think those could definitely get in for animated Elemental, obviously Pixar, and then Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse won the Academy Award, so definitely some big potential here. So first we have Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Description here, after reuniting with Gwen Stacy, Brooklyn's full-time, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man is catapulted across the multiverse, where he encounters a team of Spider-People charged with protecting its very existence. However, when the heroes clash on how to handle a new threat, 
Miles finds himself pitted against the other spiders. He must soon redefine what it means to be a hero so he can save the people he loves most. This was directed by Joaquim Dos Santos, Justin K. Thompson, and Kemp Powers. I think we have some outstanding voice work in the movie by Shamik Moore, Haley Steinfeld, Brian Tyree Henry, Daniel Kaluuya, Luna Lauren Velez, Oscar Isaac. What was your viewing experience like, and did you like this movie? I was expecting similar things based on the first movie, and I actually rewatched that a few days prior to seeing it, just to refresh my memory. I ended up really liking the original, and with this one, the sequel, I was also really impressed. I love the animation style, Mm -hmm. and I love the continuation of the story, where I think sequels sometimes have trouble maybe finding new boundaries for a universe or developing characters even more. So I love that they built on like the parent-son relationship a lot, and we got to see all of the other spider people more even though you know after the first movie we i didn't expect to based on where they left us and there were certain things that maybe i didn't love that i think other mcu lovers did you know they had all of these introductions to other easter eggs but i think overall it was a great movie and it got me really excited for part two so what did you think about it I really loved it. I think, you know, on paper, comic book movies are not really my thing. You know, I'm reluctant to go see the new MCU movies, which routinely disappoint me. I really love the Raimi Spider-Man movies because I grew up with those. But, you know, comic book movies, they're just not necessarily a genre that I am really excited for. But these movies I love. I loved Into the Spider-Verse. I think that it's just such a smart film that pushes animation forward. It feels like when that movie came out, I think it felt like a monumental breakthrough for animation. And what I liked here was that in Across the Spider-Verse, they pushed that even further with these animation styles like you were talking about. And it just is so it feels so experimental but it's something that i think kids and families can still enjoy but it doesn't talk down to them and it doesn't have i think the cloying humor that a lot of the comic book movies now that come out have that i really struggle with like in the recent guardians of the galaxy movie or last year with thor love and thunder that humor just never really works for me but here i thought that the humor was actually really clever And I thought that by starting the film with Gwen Stacy and really building her narrative up as this little like punk spider woman was really cool. And getting to see, I think, her version of New York, which was Chelsea. And then she has this incredible scene at the Guggenheim fighting the vulture As a history and art nerd, I was very, very excited by that, you know, getting to see all of the different references that were made just about that great Frank Lloyd Wright iconic structure, the Jeff Koons balloon dog, getting to see Vulture drawn in a Renaissance style, I thought was really cool. And it's just things like that, that I think open your eyes to the world of animation and how these creatives again, like keep pushing this world forward. And I think it's the most clever use of the multiverse concept that we have in film, period. 
I didn't feel tired by it. I agree. I think like some of the Easter eggs, maybe they weren't needed, but they didn't bother me necessarily to just see like all of the different spider people from different universes coming up. I never felt like those were pieces of fan service that were just added in just because, you know, and, and maybe they were, but it just, it wasn't something that I think bothered me because there was so much about the movie that I really, really liked. And as far as sequels go, I really love how they put so much work into the world building, but the characters are first and foremost. And I think I can be hard on films that just focus on world building and don't really build up their characters as well. But I think by giving Gwen a meteor character arc and really starting with her and making her relationship with Miles feel really fleshed out and lived in for a movie that has a lot going on, I thought was pretty impressive to me. And I don't want to spoil exactly, you know, what happens in the end, but it is worth noting, I think, that this movie does end on a cliffhanger going into Spider-Man beyond the Spider-Verse. It's very much like Empire Strikes Back. That's how it felt to me. I would say as a good sequel comparison, I would definitely say that one. Mm -hmm. By that point, when we started feeling this like rising action two plus hours into the movie, I'm like, okay, this has to be a cliffhanger and not another action sequence because I wanted it to at least last 40 minutes and I knew we didn't have that left. So that's when my heart kind of sank because there were quite a few storylines with him and with other spider people that were introduced in this movie and some carried over from the first film but I wanted them to at least wrap some of those up this movie Mm -hmm. and not just extend them over I guess some of that scares me too into beyond maybe letting me down based on where they left us but all three directors are returning I hope they keep expanding on this world and letting us get to know these characters. I don't know what's going to happen after that. So I hope it's Mm -hmm. either a good ending point or maybe the beginning of a different kind of series or tale. The only thing I will say about this one is that sometimes when you're watching it, it does feel overstuffed compared to the first one, which I think is cleaner and much more streamlined in its storytelling. So I don't want them to get into the like more is more problem. Like just adding and adding things on. So this one is definitely a nom for me. I think it was a really inventive sequel and kept all of the things that I loved about the original Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and just heightened them and made one of my favorite sequels that I've seen in a long time. So it's a nom for me. Definitely a nom for me too. This one definitely held up and will be enjoyable for all audiences. Okay, next up, we'll be talking about Elemental. In a city where fire, water, land, and air residents live together, a fiery young woman and a go-with-the-flow guy discover something elemental, how much they actually have in common. This was directed by Peter Sohn. It stars Leah Lewis, Mamadou Athi, Catherine O'Hara, and more. So how did you feel about Pixar's latest film? So I saw Elemental at a sold-out kid-friendly draft house screening of the movie. I thought it was really sweet. I think there were parts of it that really dragged, and I actually wonder, you know, if kids 
responded well to that because there were times where I kind of felt the story sagging a little bit. But the world itself was really exciting to me. Like, I loved the idea of Ember being this, like, true fire sign and having to deal with controlling her temper and how she meets Wade, who is this very emotional, in a sort of stereotypical way, um, water water person. (laughs) I don't know how to describe... It's hard to describe these characters, I think. But, you know, it's, it's a very high concept story that we have come to, I think, expect from Pixar. It's actually a metaphor for the immigrant experience. And there are certain times that I think that story worked really well and other times that it just, it felt like they were stretching a little bit where I just had a lot of questions really about these characters and about this world. It reminded me sort of like a half-baked Zootopia. Mm. That was, I think, the closest comparison. I also thought of Chinatown. A lot when I was watching it, which was very funny because of all of the water, the water drama. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, any fans of Chinatown, you'll enjoy that little comparison. But I thought it was cute. It did not live up to the Pixar magic of my favorites, like Ratatouille. I thought it was sweet. And it's not for me, ultimately, at the end of the day. What I love about Pixar movies is when they start you are immediately thrown into this new world. And I feel like Mm -hmm. you could have a hundred different movies created based on the first two minutes. And when they showed all of these different residents, I'll use that from the description, coming into this big city, which really, to me, looked like New York, which I think was a model for Element City. Getting to see this world was exciting, but kind of like what you were saying, what continued was a letdown for me. I felt like the first half was extremely flat. There Mm -hmm. were certain things that, you know, you have to buy into or you just have to agree to disagree with, like fire burning when they touch certain things, but not burning things up when they touch other things. (laughs) This is where you as like a former science student comes out. (laughs) I was being very analytical that way. I don't know (laughs) the logistics of this movie when the kids in my theater were not, but they were very vocal, which was cute at certain times. Mm -hmm. I wish I could remember or wrote down like what they were responding to, but I was worried at first also that I was becoming too old to enjoy Disney movies, animated movies, despite having seen Spider-Man weeks ago and liking it. But then Thankfully, the last half, I guess probably the third act, I was really drawn into. I loved the romance element of this movie, which Mm -hmm. will probably surprise you. And I didn't really like the whole Ember wanting to own this shop and that kind of dilemma of the story. Yeah. But overall, I did shed some tears. And I agree, not my favorite Pixar, probably lower half. But I think for kids, they'll totally love it. I agree. So I think I would give this a nom, actually. It's not that creative when you're thinking about other Pixar movies or anything like that. But I did have a nice time. And I really think for its intended audience, it will work. I agree with that. I'm going to say it's a bomb for me, but definitely a nom for younger audiences. 
And there are some movies that we haven't seen that have come out this summer that we won't be discussing today because neither of us have seen them. But those are The Flash, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts, The Blackening, which I've heard some good things about, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, which is that animated film with Jane Fonda, Insidious, The Red Door, which I probably will watch eventually once it goes to streaming and have, you know, like a free hour and a half and just want a bad horror movie to watch. This was directed by Patrick Wilson and did really well at the box office in his directorial debut. Another one that I really want to watch soon is They Clone Tyrone on Netflix. I've heard really positive things about that one, too, and want to check it out. I need to ask you, how many times have you seen the trailer for Gran Turismo, now Gran Turismo the movie? Surprisingly, not a lot in theaters, and thank God, but I have seen it, I would say maybe five times. Are you more? Yeah, I would say I'm probably between the like five to ten range right now. Um, So... It is one of those where it's also just a crazy trailer, the new one at least. They do like an entire cast interview segment before they do the trailer. So it's a very long extended trailer that they play ahead of movies. I saw some dud trailers before I saw Haunted Mansion, which should have been my clue (laughs) that my experience was not going to be a positive one. Well, this is out this weekend too. I've heard some like really good things about it, so I'm confused because yeah. that does not match up with the trailer. We'll just have to see. But we get Orlando Bloom back. I just, I don't know. From gamer to racer. Again, I think it's for <laughs> like a younger teenage audience and one of mm-hmm. like a gaming generation. Yeah, we'll see how this does at the box office. And then just some other movies that are coming this summer. Passages is currently in a limited release right now, and this should be coming to Mubi in the fall, the streaming platform. Also, Strays is coming, the R-rated CG animal comedy, Blue Beetle. This is a DC property. Shortcomings, also out this weekend. Bottoms, very excited for this. And then also the Equalizer 3. Yeah, I think of these, I'm... Definitely most excited to see Passages, the Iris Axe movie that we previewed on our 2023 movie preview episode. I can't wait to see that. And Bottoms, which I just saw the Red Band trailer for and really can't wait to see. Yeah, I think out of all of these, Bottoms is my most anticipated too. But if you could give any of these movies one Oscar, which movie is it and what would it be? So if I had to give any of these movies one Oscar... I would go with A Fire, the Christian Petzold movie that I really loved and will stay, I think, near the top of my list throughout the year. I really just, it floored me. I think if I had to choose an Oscar for it, so hard because I think Paula Beer is just incredible in the movie. So I'm tempted to say actress for her, but I think I'm just going to go with international feature. Just reward the entire film. What about you? I'm really tempted to say Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for animated feature. I think it definitely mm-hmm. could happen, but I think I'm going to go with one that you're going to hate me for, which is <laughs> giving Best Actress to Sophie Wilde from Talk to Me. <laughs> I don't have any problems with her acting, to be clear. I thought she was good. It was just the writing the of the itself. character. Yeah. I do agree that there are 
scares in this movie that you can see coming and are just overly gruesome to like almost a saw level that I just I looked away I didn't watch any of it because it's just too much but there are still definitely some smarts in here that a lot of those gory horror movies don't really have saw 10 coming out also later this year I have no interest in that after watching the trailer (laughs) it just looks like you're going to be nauseous the whole time Mm -hmm. yeah I haven't even seen the trailer for it. I do like the first Saw, but I can't Mm. believe we're on number 10. I don't think Talk To Me gets to that level at all. But I will say Sophie's performance again. I was really surprised by this and delighted and excited to see what she does next. So we just recapped a lot of movies and gave some of our recommendations for the summer. Let us know if there are any that we missed that you think we should check out. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be returning to one of our favorite themes that we haven't tackled in a while. We will be doing a They Won for That with a twist. So we'll be looking at a pair and we'll be doing They Won for That and Not That. Looking at Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. So we'll be talking about Thelma and Louise, of course, which came out in 1991 and has a new 4K out. It's also coming out again, I think, in select theaters. So definitely go see it if you can, if it's on the big screen near you. And we'll also be talking about each of their Oscar wins. So Susan Sarandon's Best Actress win for Dead Man Walking and Gina Davis's Best Supporting Actress win for The Accidental Tourist. I'm very excited to talk about these three movies and these two actresses who I really like. I haven't seen their Oscar wins before, so I'm definitely intrigued to watch those. And yes, I loved seeing Thelma and Louise earlier this year. Thank you all for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. We also have plenty of bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde, including an upcoming After Dark episode on Barbenheimer. We'll be covering Red Eye featuring Killian Murphy and About Time featuring Margot Robbie. I can't wait to talk about those two films. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.